The Highlander Podcast is brought to you by Outdoor Product Design and Development, a four-year undergraduate degree focused on training the next generation of product creators for the sports and outdoor industries. Learn more at opdd.usu.edu. The Highlander Podcast is sponsored by the Utah Outdoor Association, a business association focused on elevating Utah's outdoor industry through educational programming and events. Their membership consists of Utah's outdoor manufacturers, retailers, outfitters, and guides. Member benefits include networking opportunities, recruitment of talent, and brand promotion. More information about volunteering and membership is available at utahoutdoor.org. On this episode of the Highlander Podcast, we continue our History of Gear series talking about the history of Warmlight with Bruce Johnson. We talk about the founder Jack Stevenson, his innovations, controversial legacy, and impacts on the industry. Welcome back, everyone. This is Chase, and joining me again for our History of Gear series is Bruce Johnson. Thanks for joining me, Bruce. Well, I'm excited to be here again. Yeah, we're, we're talking a little bit about Jack Stevenson and the founding of Warmlight today. Yes, this is... Um... I have so much material strewn all over the house this morning, in addition to my digital archives. So I'd like to start off with a little bit of a, just a little show and tell, because this fellow was so controversial and yet pretty little known really outside of some pretty exclusive circles, but boy, was he a pioneer. So. Jack Stevenson visited Roy and Alice Hollybar on their honeymoon in 1955 and were inspired to start another little business in a basement, just like Roy and Alice had. The occasion of that visit was they had froze their butts off in the Rockies, in Rocky Mountain National Park, with very inadequate gear. And they were just flabbergasted when they saw what the Hollybars were doing and went away from the holly bars back to their home in California with uh, two of the holly bar down sleeping bags. So what many don't know about Jack Stevenson, the aerospace engineer at Hughes Aircraft in Southern California, they don't know that he was also a lifelong and very good sailor and sail racer. And uh, one of the fellows in that picture is Peter Barrett, who was a uh, Olympic uh, winning uh, sailor. So throughout Jack's life, starting when he was just a kid, he sailed and sailed and raced and uh, was still sailing when I was writing the book. Uh, as a matter of fact, he invited me to come sailing with him down in the Bahamas on that boat where I might have met that Peter Barrett. But I, um, I passed up the opportunity. I was, I guess I was too shy. I was very worried that it was going to be this kind of a scene. Jack Stevenson was also a notorious naturist. And his catalogs featured various people, family and not family and employees, uh, in various states of not many or no clothes modeling the gear. Now, I have another picture. So 
he was a gear designer. He was a aerospace engineer. Um, he was a sailor. And the other thing most people have never imagined or known about is that he was also somebody who flew airplanes from a very early age and throughout his life. And being a genius, he also invented things related to airplanes <laughs> and, and sailing. And I wanted to read just a, a little piece um, out of his obituary. Uh, one of his daughters uh, wrote this little piece, which surprised me a great deal because I'd always focused on him as a as a outdoor gear guy. One of his kids, who uh, is named Laura Jean, said this: "Possibly my dad's greatest legacy is helping keep world peace." by saving lives via his anti-missile designs developed while working for Hughes Aircraft. These anti-missiles were and are used solely to intercept armed destructive missiles. The Phoenix Fleet defense missile, 100% dad's design, is still in production and used today for defense. So that was not something about this man that I had ever really thought about. I knew he was an aerospace engineer, but I had never understood that about his other life I, I think it's easy to like put some of these people into a box and just say oh that's they're the gear guy like they just did this they exist in this world but so many of these founders um really just had other parts of their life right and uh were influenced by so many different things and it's nice to to see those different aspects and different influences that that um made them who they are right um, so I, I think that's nice to give us a better picture as a whole of who this person was and maybe how some of that informed uh, the company, the products that uh, that they made. So I, I think that's really helpful. Yeah, uh, thanks. Um, I, I think the story of, of Warmlight and Jack Stevenson is, is interesting because as we've talked about in previous podcasts, it's a little different from others from this time period who ended up selling. Um, you know, this is a company that... Uh, it didn't end up selling, right? It kind of, it stayed in the family, which is, is interesting and, and a little unique of these first few companies that we've talked about. Um, and we'll get into that as well. The Warm Light Company um, really is unique uh, among the companies that I've tracked anyway. They never sold and they never went corporate. They never manufactured anything in Asia. Uh, they had a cottage industry model. and it was all in the U.S. Right, and still is, right? And still is. Now they're they're in Colorado. Right. So we'll we'll get into that and kind of how they got to that point. But I think it's helpful, you know, giving that summary of of the man, you know, the company, his influences. I think that was really helpful. And and I'm glad you mentioned that he he indicated that he always wanted to be when he was brought up. Joan was a part of that, his wife, and and how instrumental she was in all of this as well. So. We'll get into their history here. Um, I, I guess it's helpful to know the time period in which he was growing up. He was born in 1933. Uh, where, where was he born? Where did he grow up? And kind of what were the conditions that he was growing up under? He was born in New Jersey. And his main exposure to the out of doors was because he was really into scouting. And so was his dad. And he had a mother who sewed and taught him sewing. So 
that's some things in common with people, for instance, like Jerry Cunningham. And they'd take trips from New Jersey during the good seasons and go up to New Hampshire and the White Mountains and hike around. So he had that early exposure as he grew up and went to college and became an aeronautical engineer and moved to Southern California. That all started things in a certain direction. Right. So where did he go to school? Southern California. Where was he? Where did he study? Uh, actually, he studied at uh, Rutgers and uh, was a top engineering student. Right. And then it sounds like ended up pursuing an, an aerospace engineering career and did really well from that obituary, you know, was a part of some really important innovations and, and, um, and designs that, that went to production and are in use even today, it sounds like. Um, so did, you know, during that time, um, was, I, I imagine he was still playing outside, um, you, you know, all through working. Um, he was still trying to find ways to get outside and, and use gear. It sounds like you mentioned a little bit their their connection to the whole U bars. When when did that happen? Um, 1955. He and okay. uh, Joan got married, and they were taking hiking trips here and there. Ended up in Rocky Mountain National Park. Had heard about the holly bars and ended up uh, down in the holly bar basement talking gear and buying a couple down sleeping bags. And getting inspired with the concept, hey, people can do a business in their basement. They ended up doing a business at first out of their trailer that they were living in with their, at the time, three or four children. And that was in Southern California? Mm-hmm. Yes. Wow. So that's kind of how they fit into the Holyabar family tree. And we've, we've you know, talked about that quite a bit. It's you know, all these companies that kind of branched out from, you know, initially Jerry, right. Um, you know, Jerry, Holubar, all these different companies that kind of spun out from them. And so that's kind of where they fit into this conversation. It sounds like. Yes. Yes. Except unlike Jerry Cunningham or, or Dale Johnson, this guy was say bona fide, uh, aerospace engineer of a very, very creative bent. And he writes, uh, he writes uh, his inspiration. You're going to ask him, what was his inspiration for creating gear? And this was just so perfect when he told it to me. So it's in the book. I was always a skinny kid who got cold sooner than anyone else and couldn't carry much. Our first overnight backpacking trip was to climb Mount Whitney, highest peak in the lower 48, near broke my back and froze my butt. I immediately went looking for sail fabric and down. and then. Also, the Colorado thing and the holly bars. But um, he was five foot ten and quite skinny, and he was into comfort. His goal became to create really warm things, sleeping bags and clothing that would uh, get rid of that problem of getting cold in the outdoors. And also, comfort was a really big thing for him, both in backpacks and even sleeping at night. He wasn't the guy who wanted to go out and sleep on a quarter inch of ant slide on the rocky ground. He created a whole new type of sleeping pad that was so far ahead of its time. So that's kind of how he got going on. This. It, it seems like f for so many of these people, it was having a bad experience with gear that inspired them to go and make their own thing. Cause in their minds, no one else was doing it the way that they thought it should be done. 
um, it seems like that's a common thread among some of these early founders is seeing the deficiencies and then trying to improve upon what already existed in a way. Yes. And this Jack Stevenson's mind was not only informed by aerospace considerations and knowledge of aerodynamics, but just thinking outside the box to the max. He didn't care. He just, he was so far ahead of him. Anybody really at that time, Jerry and Holly, they were using pretty much standard fabrics and standard things. And Stevenson just blew a lot of that out of the water. Right. When, when did he start making products for other people? I know that you know, he had coworkers who started seeing the products that he was making. And maybe is that when he started to realize, oh, well, it sounds like with the Holy Bars, he realized, oh, you could start a business doing this. Well, then he started yeah. making things and started selling them to, to people at work, it sounds like. It was, uh, yeah, basically that kind of a thing about just making the year for himself and his family. And then all to a few, you know, friends and stuff caught on. And one of his, uh, earliest business associations that got him out there more was meeting Dick Kelty, who was a a neighbor in Southern California. Now, maybe some listeners to a podcast that don't know who Dick Kelty was. I mean, I've run into that. It's like, to me, it's like, you don't know who Dick Kelty is? How could that possibly be? Uh, Kind of the inventor of the first modern backpack well, but not really, um, but certainly the, the be- best known early inventor of the frame pack, the backpack, Dick Kelty. Um, so Jack had invented what was probably the first true hip carry pack back in about 58, but it competed with Dick Kelty, what he had, which didn't have it. Uh, a real hip carry on it. So Dick Kelty wanted to go into business with him in a small way, but he didn't want Jack's pack. He wanted Jack's down sleeping bags. So the Dick uh, Kelty store carried the sleeping bags that Warm Light was making, which were, uh, they weren't revolutionary in the sense that, that Alice Holly bars were, but they were filled with the very best down available and, and used ultralight fabrics. Um, that's the pack. This, that's the, the Jack pack. Yeah. This is probably the first true hip carry pack in the development of, of packs, uh, at least high capacity packs. And it had an aluminum box, which was another thing outside the <laughs> box <laughs> idea to keep rodents out of the pack. Because right. he'd had packs chewed into up in the Sierras. So up to that point, what what were packs like? What what were people dealing with? Um, and maybe maybe sharing a little bit about Dick Kelty and his innovations would be helpful to frame frame what was going on at, at that time and mm-hmm. and what uh, Jack was being influenced by. Well, Jack had tried to carry some of these other packs, being that he was a skinny guy with very little padding. He found them uncomfortable, like carrying around a Kelty pack loaded up with sandbags. There's a famous story that uh, he told me where he and uh, Dick Kelty were together in their neighborhood down there in Southern California. And they were visiting about packs and talking about their respective packs. And um, 
they took sandbags and loaded up the uh, jackpack, and Dick Kelty went walking around the block with it and came back saying, wow, your pack's way more comfortable than mine. That kind of thing, uh, the Kelty pack uh, was basically an aluminum frame and welded in a certain way and with a back band that kept it away from your back and some shoulder straps that at first weren't very well padded or anatomically designed. And uh, the waist belt was just a, a, a strap that went around your hips. And if you were carrying a heavy load day after day, there was this famous macho thing that you had to get used to, which were, were uh, Kelty bruises, they were called, across your hip bones. So that's kind of uh, what led Jack to invent something that he thought was better. Was the Jackpack really uh, Jack's ma first major product, first major innovation? It's kind of 1957. That's when that product was created. Is that kind of the first breakthrough for him? Yeah, I would say that was probably the first thing. I mean, he had been uh, also making the down sleeping bags at that time, but they weren't, as I say, so innovative. Right. But this this was one of the groundbreakers. And so we just to frame this within the kind of the larger industry, Yvonne, 1957, around this time, is doing his thing, innovating when it comes to climbing gear. Yeah, he's a he's the blacksmith. He's a, hammering out uh, gear on his forge and taking it up to the valley to uh, sell it out of the back of his car. Right. Yeah, that's so, that's the time frame. Right. So so much happening just across the country around this time period too. So I guess the major innovations of the pack is this idea of, oh, you could have a, a kind of a box on your, on your back, um, as well as the comfort of the, of the hip strap. Is that, are you, is that what you'd say? Kind of the major yeah. innovations? Well, you can have a hip strap, but mm -hmm. that's not the same as hip carry where the, right. there's a, a load transfer that's significant to right. take, take the, the weight off your shoulders. So how was that product received? How did they get it out into the world? Jack Stevenson was never interested in becoming corporate or big. So uh, he just would put occasional ads out in uh, Summit Magazine originally. Well, this was, this was one out of 1958 Summit Magazine. And he was not trying to uh, become big. So it was, again, a lot of word of mouth. He wasn't so much after climbers, although he did have plenty of them eventually. He was after just backpackers. That's what he was targeting as backpackers. So the word got around and it never became big, but lo and behold, by about mm, 71, 72, Kelty finally started having true hip, hip carry belts. And um, as you know, everybody does now. Right. So kind of in between that time period, he was, it was really just word of mouth and just trying to get really not trying to grow too much, but it, word got around. What, what was his reputation at that time for that pack where, where people, what the response was good. What were, do you happen to know what people thought of it at that time? Never heard that, which brings up uh, Jack Stevenson's overall reputation among the, um, establishment the establishment of the backpacking industry he was always such a rogue 
and the fact that he had these catalogs, um, oh my God, they were, they were just shocked. This is right. his, his famous collector's item now, 1974 uh, main gear catalog. Inside there's a centerfold of, of his wife stretched out on a field of poppies. And that kind of thing alienated plenty of people. The catalog <clears throat> on the front of it has a quote from uh, the famous American uh, poet, uh, Walt Whitman, that talks about a philosophy of why you might wanna not have your clothes on when you're in the, in the outdoors. So he went on just his merry way and uh, uh, was also at the same time uh, doing radical things uh, to tents. Right. Yeah. What were kind of what was the state of tents? Who was making tents prior to, to Jack coming in and innovating on that idea? It sounds like a lot of A-frame tents at that time. Um, what, what were the state of things before he came in and kind of disrupted that space or innovated? Well, both Jerry and Hollybar uh, had tents. There were A-frames and uh, many different designs of A-frames ranging from expedition models like like Jerry made uh, to lightweight models for the family backpacking that Jerry favored. But they were all A-frames. And with an aerospace background, this, this is up on, uh, I think, Baffin Island in the Canadian Arctic. And that's the classic design. It's called the elliptical arch. Some people just call it a hoop tent. Uh, Jack would argue with them because there are definitely nuances to an aerospace engineer about how that's done. Uh, but the whole idea is putting the poles inside and you have an aerodynamic shape, very smooth airflow. And these things really work. Uh, 100 mile an hour winds and I mean, they really work. and. They're very lightweight, uh, require only three to four stakes. And he made them out of revolutionary materials. He was probably one of the very first people ever to use sil nylon. This leads me into a discussion of how he got into fabrics in the first place, and that was sailing. Because the sails used in sailboats and for racing were undergoing evolution throughout this post-war war period. Um, and Jack, once he got to uh, Southern California, he was still sailing and he was trying to race and he got connected up with a man named Noah Lamport. This led him to have source materials of ultralight uh, nylons and a great no a deal of knowledge about ultralight nylons, like 1.1 ounce. Uh, nylons <clears throat> and eventually it led him into things like very exotic materials like well I'll, I'll just put that one back up again a little bit that kind of gold look tent that's an exotic laminate that uh, eventually got heavily used in sail racing um, it's got a polyester base and it has a vapor deposited uh, kind of a bronze on top of that, uh, overcoated with mylar. And it's very, very strong, very light and uh, waterproof. 
And I have one of those tents and I've used it for years, many years. Um, I call mine the golden voyager. Mm. So it's a very roomy three man tent that weighs three pounds, two ounces. Just like Jerry Cunningham, Stevenson was a, a real founder of ultralight. Right. It seems like he was really pushing the industry forward in a way. I don't know if he was the first to really do that around this time period and, and kind of ushered in this modern era of, of, you know, lighter, stronger, faster, you know, all kind of that. And, and maybe that's his aerospace background that he was pulling that in and this awareness of materials, but it seems like he was kind of ushering in this modern era of, of, you know, kind of the way that we think now, which is, Oh, how do I get this to be, you know, lighter and stronger and, uh, just seems maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like he's the one that's kind of ushering that era in. Oh, totally for sure. No, I, I, there's no competition yeah. as early as he was, and that design became very much ripped off again and again. Um, Stevenson also wasn't very big on getting patents, and um, people ripped him off. Um, his sleeping bags, which we'll get to in a minute, um, one of their many innovations was a double zipper instead of a standard draft flap, a double zipper up the side that would um, better keep the heat in. Uh, well, that showed up in a catalog I was getting from a, a major manufacturer as a great innovation that that company had made in 1972. Mm. Stevenson's bags that had it for years. And of right. course, did they credit Stevenson? No. Stevenson's elliptical art. And then uh, variations here and there, other companies were making modifications to A-frames where they would be a little more self-supporting. Um, and then along came finally uh, uh, domes. And Jansport had a really great dome. It wasn't quite, it wasn't quite, a true geodesic design that came along when North Face introduced it in 76. And then you had your, your whole um, rush to make geodesic dome tents, which right. is still, of course, one of the main things today, especially among expeditionary people. Yeah. So what, I guess, I mean, this company is, is still around today. Um, how how long was he involved in the company? Um, you know, started in 57. Um, how long was he, you know, formally involved? Well, you have to understand it was a family business. And when they left uh, California in 1975 up to New Hampshire, a little town there on Lake Winnipesaukee, and he built a monstrous house. He was talented that way, too. I don't know how many floors it had, four or five floors, stories, great big decks where you could uh, uh, spread the products out to, uh, uh, for instance, seam seal them. Uh, anyway, uh, so formally he got out in 1998, but he was still living in the same place yeah. with his son, William, who was now the, the person who was uh, running it. And uh, he had a manager, uh, who I've been instructed to give total credit to Jane Fortin, who joined him in, I think, 1980 and was just so central to keeping that business going well because Jack wasn't 
like a businessman. Right. Yeah. He was the, the innovator, the creative person. Um, what, what were some of those high points over, I mean, this company has been around for a long time. Um, you know, we talked about some of the major product innovations, what type of success did they have or, um, you know, recognition in the 92 as you know, with some of the others that we've talked about, um, Jack was recognized as one of the gear pioneers, right? So yes. the industry seemed mm-hmm. to recognize that. How much did the public know about warm light? I again have to say that Jack never tried to advertise himself, never tried to make it big. The, um, the, the mainline, uh, magazines and so forth that he was a little too controversial and i might i might add and this could be incorrect but uh, he didn't advertise in the mainline magazines and so you might speculate that because he didn't advertise they weren't so inclined to want to cover him right because i mean he had advertisements in summit but that was in the 50s or 60s right and that was not a mainstream publication right Mm -hmm. Not at all. <laughs> so, yeah, definitely smaller advertisements. But that's interesting. And it, so that just never really appealed to him. You know, growing a, a massive company that he could sell or um, he, he seemed to be very interested in the products itself and making stuff that he would enjoy and he would use. Yeah, exactly. And as I've mentioned, he was always a sailor and an airplane guy. And so those were major things. I mean, why did he locate himself to New Hampshire beside a gigantic lake where he could sail all the time, right? Right. So throughout the the course of the company, you mentioned, you know, making the product in the U.S. was really important to them. Was their manufacturing always close by their, their home or, you know, wherever the location of the company was? Oh, not so much because it was the cottage industry. You know, people could make up a tent and send it to a customer or send it to Jack from hundreds of miles away if need be. Yeah. So, so they, they didn't have a manufacturing facility necessarily or how, yeah, how they, was there? Oh, they can make, they could uh, make, make their products themselves, but to get more volume, they had the, the cottage industry. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, and then you mentioned company never sold, um, and, and how unique that was. Um, and, and really still is, you know, especially in the era that we live now, so much of the outdoor industry has been bought and sold and traded and, and, you know, most of the companies seem to be, have a parent company somewhere with Mm -hmm. some name that no one would recognize or doesn't sound outdoorsy at all. Um, so kind of just an interesting contrast um, and to see them still functioning in, in Colorado with the family, right? Yeah. When Jack passed away in 2017, his niece, uh, whose name is uh, Kim, uh, took it over and uh, she lived in Colorado and they moved it down there. Uh, it was interesting to me from the standpoint of I'd seen pictures of when uh, Jack in 1975 packed up his entire family and the whole business into, I think it was like two big moving trucks and moved out to New Hampshire. Now, however many years later that would be, 40 years, 50, I, I don't do the math in my head right now, but 
he passes away. And now we have a U-Haul truck uh, loading up all kinds of fabric, machines, and everything in a big truck. And off it goes to Colorado, which I think is it's kind of a, a really neat bookend to the company's history that they first got inspired in Colorado and they end up back in Colorado. Yeah, that, that is an interesting bookend for sure. Um, what, what do you think the legacy of, of Jack and Joan is the legacy of the company? Uh, there are, there are many legacies and I haven't actually covered one of the more controversial ones. Um, if you go back to like the Korean war, uh, the soldiers freezing their feet off, getting frostbite, uh, the invention of things, I think they were called bunny boots, um, vapor barrier design. As an engineer, Jack Stevenson uh, really adopted the concept of vapor barrier design, such as is used in houses, for instance. That's what all houses have. They have a, uh, <coughs> a vapor wrap so that the moisture created in the house doesn't go out and rot the siding from the inside. So he applied that to clothing and to keeping people warm. His sleeping bags were lined with vapor barrier material. Um, and I wanted to get into that a little bit because it was another one of those really controversial things that got a lot of people thinking and created a small following, which is still around today in a few companies. Uh, I'm wearing this thing today is a uh, Pertex thing made by North Face. And it actually is a partial vapor barrier. When I wear this thing under something else, it's incredible how much extra warmth it adds. Um, Stevenson went through a number of different materials to find a vapor barrier that was actually comfortable to wear and eventually came up with this stuff called fuzzy stuff. When you add this to a glove, <clears throat> the amount of extra warmth it provides is, is quite incredible. It also prevents, of course, if you're working hard, moisture from getting into your insulation. Uh, a lot of polar explorers swore by vapor barrier. He had it in all kinds of clothing, he had it in his sleeping bags. But to me, the, the best uses were gloves and feet. And those extremities produce a lot of moisture and that moisture getting into the socks, getting into the gloves, getting into your polar mittens, what was really a problem in extended uh, ultra cold situations. So uh, I myself really believe in, okay, quote unquote, believe in vapor barrier, but it's, it's been very sporadically accepted by any of the mainstream. I could point out a small company that makes a lot of really cold weather stuff that uses vapor barrier. I could point out some of the uh, companies uh, in Colorado in the 70s, like uh, Camp 7, that offered vapor barrier liners you could stick into your sleeping bags. So it wasn't a concept that had no adherence, 
but it certainly was an example of how Stevenson was way outside the norm. Right. Yeah. Right. And so his legacy uh, in a way is here's a person who just was not afraid to create stuff that was unheard of that had who knows um, such a small chance of commercial success, but he didn't care. He didn't want to be corporate. And if you wrote him in those early days before the internet, <clears throat> you'd get this kind of stuff back. You'd say, I don't know about that. I, I don't know about that warm light stuff that I, I don't know about vapor barrier, my sleeping bag, you'd back stuff like this from him send you a big long, big long letter telling you why it's great he would who knows how long it takes to write something like this yeah um excellent penmanship just carefully scientifically laid out explained to the t his catalogs were like that too and many said ah that was a that was a dumb thing who what kind of consumer wants to read all that technical crap yeah, now look, every you know, anyone who's who's a serious outdoors person and seems to geek out over all of that and everyone wants to know how much it weighs and what it's made out of and how it performs and yeah, in that way he was way ahead of his time and and I, I think that's an important legacy too, right? Just this idea of wanting to know what your stuff is made out of and, and why and you know what, what it'll do. Yeah, and how it works. Right. He was a valued community member in his little community. Well, so he's a naturist, but nah, he never made anybody have to do anything with that or he didn't go out in public. Um, he was a valued community member. He had a lot of heavy equipment that he loved to use. Anytime a community emergency came up, he was Johnny on the spot to fix it up. He uh, was a churchgoer. Uh, his bass voice was, uh, his pastor told me, was he was like a great member of the choir. Uh, just these things you wouldn't think of. Uh, Stevenson gave me tons of original material like you've seen. And he also gave me this. It's like about everybody in the outdoor gear industry at the time, all the secret inside information, phone numbers and how to contact them and things like that. Um, so he was a very generous guy and I've heard from uh, ex-customers, family members of his, uh, who just really talk about that aspect of who he was. Right. Do you mind sharing a little bit more about, um, y you've mentioned it on previous episodes, but share a little bit about that conversation that, that he and, and you had about starting to document the history. Like, how did that come about? And um, I mean, he really set you on this course in a way of, of documenting the history of the industry, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, being the person that he was, you ask him a question, you don't just get a two-word answer. You get an answer that educates you. It gives you maybe way more than you ever wanted. And so you begin to be educated, and that makes you curious. I've always had a scientifically oriented mind. And so he and I just 
fit in in that way. So as I began to understand more and more about his way of thinking about gear and, and the science behind it, uh, I think that was pretty inspirational. So when I talked to other founders, especially I'd always have this, uh, this kind of frame on it of how does that all work? Why do you think that's a good design? So his, his contribution uh, to the industry is, you might say, to really shake it up. <laughs> as as uh, little known as he was in, in a lot of circles, uh, when you talk to serious gear people, they nearly always knew about him and had opinions, positive or negative, about him. And... Uh, he didn't suffer fools. So uh, people who would uh, question him would get a full explanation from a very engineering or scientific viewpoint. And if they still persisted in being, um, you might say, stupid, uh, he could be abrasive. So you would get customers saying he's a wonderful guy, and you'd have this subset over here saying, ah, oh, he's us, an arrogant jerk. Um, I always thought he needed a, um, a customer service rep. Another guy in the industry that really turned me on to uh, Stevenson was Wayne Gregory. Mm -hmm. Uh, who was also a Southern California guy in that time period, a little younger, um, said to me that Stevenson was one step away from greatness. Um, so a complex guy in, in many ways, just a much more complex guy uh, that you couldn't put in one frame very well and just look at him one way. And in terms of history of gear, uh, you just got to say uh, he really shook it up and put some designs in there that uh, shook up people's concepts and led to people either adopting them or taking something from them and using it in their own way. And it, again, nice to know that the industry has recognized you know, their impacts, um, at least in, in 92, when OIA, um, you know, made those, um, you know, gave those awards and recognition. So two of my big contributors were two of his girls, yeah. uh, Beverly and also Laura Jane. Uh, they both, both were just invaluable. Well, I, I think this has been great. It's been awesome to, to learn a little bit more about Jack and Jack and Joan and, and, and Warmlight. Well, I hope I've done it justice. As I say, I've got so much material on this particular company. It's just overwhelming. <laughs> yeah, no, well, I think that was, that was a great summary. So thanks as always, Bruce, for taking time and, and sharing, uh, you know, your, your incredible research. Thanks for listening to the Highlander podcast. Subscribe and listen for more outdoor stories and content wherever podcasts are found on highlandermag.com 
and each Sunday at 4 p.m. on Aggie Radio, 92.3 FM in Cache Valley.